Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I think so much around some of the problematic people. Origin story. So isolated and made to feel exceptional. So much so that he betrays his own people. Because I think that's what happens when you believe the exceptionalism. You do everything you can to protect it. You can't let anybody in. Because if you let anyone in, you're not exceptional exceptional anymore. You can't be the only one if there's other people. So you gatekeep, you keep it small. So, you know, if you don't want to become that villain, again, everyone has something is extraordinary, but it's not based on just limiting yourself to being the only person. I am Paris Hatcher and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today, I'm talking to Paris Hatcher, who is an amazing force. Paris is a Black queer visionary feminist who is the executive director at Black Feminist Future. She also runs another organization called Black Freedom Outfitters, which aims to get folks outside and into nature. Paris has had an incredible journey. She is very passionate about women's rights, very passionate about queer rights, very passionate about empowering more Black feminists in the world. And her unique self-experience of being at the intersection of many of these things gives her a perspective, I think, that is unique to anybody else. She grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina with two very loving parents and a very supportive community. And since then has moved on to doing amazing things, mainly in the Atlanta area. She's inspired many, many of us and continues to just expand her efforts to bring more people on board, to make a real difference for folks in underserved and marginalized communities. And I think that you're really going to enjoy all of the things that we talked about. We laughed, we bonded, we discussed her hate of onions, which I found to be fascinating. <laughs> but I really hope you enjoy this talk with our new friend, Paris Hatcher. Well, hello, Paris. It's so great to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I feel like we tried to make this happen a couple of times and today yeah. was the day. So today's the day that all the planets have aligned, all yes. the stars have aligned. <laughs> The microphones have aligned. Yeah, everything is is ready for us. Yes, exactly. And Paris, I think a lot of our listeners probably have heard of you or have known about the work that you do. I'm curious to know, where are you from? Yes, so 
I am a Southern girl. That's like a big part of my identity, but I was mm-hmm. born and raised in Greensboro, North Carolina. A lot of folks know or have heard about Greensboro because it's known as the birthplace of the sit-ins. So February 1, 1960, four college students went to the Woolworth counter in downtown Greensboro to desegregate the Woolworths. And so that's how a lot of people know the city that I'm from. But yes, that city and that history of resistance has been baked in, inside of me. And so I love Greensboro very much. That's so great. Do you ever get asked, where are you really from? Oh, no, no, no. Um, I think because it's really interesting. So I'm a descendant of U.S. slavery. So uh-huh. both sides of my family were, um, we we were brought here enslaved. Yep. And I think because of that and what that meant to be, to be in the U S that really creates like a distinct way that a lot of people, black people in the U S look. So whenever I travel the world, it's really clear that I'm not of that place. Like I don't look like I am from the Caribbean or different places on the continent, I look like what the legacy of slavery looks like in the U.S. So I think because of that, oftentimes when I travel the world, they know that I'm from the U.S., right? And here, I think because I'm lighter skinned, but both my parents are, you know, Black, they don't read me as anything else. Hmm. Yeah. I think context for me really matters, right? So my complexion, right? I think the way that I speak. Yep. But people know like, oh no, she's, she's from the U.S. Right, right. And Greensboro, I haven't met a ton of people from specifically Greensboro, but North Carolina usually has folks from that area have a Southern accent. And it sounds like you've, you've lost yours. Oh, that's so interesting. (laughs) Depending on who you talk to. Yeah. They will say they even, they hear it really deeply. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you catch me after a conversation with my mama. Right. Then right. You'll hear it. Yeah. Even the way you just said mama, yeah. just the way you said mama. I'm like, okay, I get it. She's a Southern girl. I can hear it now. <laughs> some people hear it. Some people don't. Some people are like, oh yeah. my gosh, when I was growing up, they used to say I sounded like uh, Whitley Gilbert from a different world because my accent seemed. Oh yeah. Well, it just really depends. Some people hear it. Some people don't. Um, right. My daddy is very, very, very country. Like literally, like you would think like, oh my God, this is what a Southern accent sounds like. My mama, not so much. Right. Yeah. Right. How did they meet? Did they meet in Greensboro as well? They did meet in Greensboro. So what I love about my family, uh, I mean, I love a lot of things about my family, but I will say when when folks say, well, what did your your people teach you? I would say that they taught me the importance in three things. It was education, owning land, mm-hmm. and voting. They were like, for Black people, that is very key. Now, I have critiques of that now, but I do think that those three basic tenets really are around being able to have a dignity and autonomy and being able to have agency over your life. I think that was like at the root of it. So for the education part, I'm a third-generation 
college graduate on my mom's side. So my grandma and my mom went to HBCUs. They both went to North Carolina A&T um, University, which is in Greensboro. And my dad, he was one of six kids and his, my grandparents, so his parents lived in Mount Airy, which is, people know it as the area where the show Mayberry was shot. Uh-huh. Yep. That's where my daddy's from. So really rural. They were farmers. Really think about like the land went from being enslaved to sharecropping to then owning the land. And though they themselves, my grandparents did not get out of middle school, all of their children went to college. They put their children through college. And so they both met at the campus at A&T mm-hmm. in the 70s. Yeah, they dated and that's where my, and got married and that's where my story starts. Wow. And then did you guys live in Greensboro? Yes. For basically your whole childhood? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't leave Greensboro until I was 22 years old and then I moved to it. Oh, wow. So I went to college yeah. in Greensboro and I grew up in, you know, I, mm-hmm. that was my, that was my life. That's amazing. Yeah. What was it like growing up there? I mean, it sounds like because your parents had deep roots there. Like they met there. They, I'm guessing they probably had a pretty strong community there. What was that like growing up? Yeah. I mean, I think about how we always lived in black neighborhoods, which was very Mm -hmm. even key to me now as a sense of like safety and belonging, especially because when I think about how, uh, so many of our, the systems in our world, I mean, even housing is racialized, but even education. So I was you know, considered one of those gifted children. And I put that in quotes. And so it'd literally be me, the one Black student in my classes, which again, not based really on anything, right? I mean, maybe I was smart, but there was no, there was other smart Black children. Yeah. But so it was always great to, you know, go from being like truly, and again, I went to a mixed school. So it was like half Mm -hmm. Black, half white. We didn't really have a lot of other, you know, kids of color there. That really wasn't yeah. the case then. I think that's changed now, but I would go from my Black neighborhood on a bus to then being in school and classes with basically I'd be the only person. So I didn't come back to my neighborhood, which felt really important. Mm-hmm. We were a part of a church community, faith community church, which was led by incredible organizers, Nelson and Joyce Johnson, which was like a really big key part of my development and wanting to be a part of social change. Yeah, I was really, when it, especially when it came to my identity as a Black person, I was not, I, I was very clear about that of myself. Like that was very, very right clear. And my family gave me a lot of foundation for that. It sounds so, it just sounds so perfect. Like it sounds so healthy. It sounds so accepting, you know? And I think a lot of us, struggled with that growing up. I mean, it's one of those things where I kind of like you, I grew up in a community that was very monolithic in some ways. Like I I grew up in Chinatown. My parents are Chinese and my dad had grown up in that neighborhood too. So I had that comfort of everyone around me looks like me and everybody around me has the same culture as me. And I stayed in that community for a long time. It really wasn't until probably about college that I felt like a minority, like where I, you know, was in rooms suddenly where I wasn't part of um, a majority. And it, 
it was a completely different experience. And some of a lot of the guests that we've had on the show, like they, unlike you and I, you know, they've had to go through that at very young ages. And so it's almost, it's, it's an interesting, it's just an interesting difference because I do remember being young and like, it was totally normal. Like Chinese new year was like a real holiday. You know, you'd you'd celebrate it the same way you'd celebrate Christmas or Halloween and everybody just did it right. Like having dumplings for breakfast, going to dim sum with my grandparents. Like it's just, it was just mainstream in many ways. And it didn't occur to me that that was actually very specific to our community or that it would be, you know, a different type of experience from, from everybody else until I was around a lot of everybody else's. Yeah. I mean, I can say though, the thing that was really jarring though, was that though we had that, it was really the stark reminder of the difference was when I would be in classes with and started to form friendships with the white kids. Mm-hmm. We didn't live with any white people, right? Like right. literally yeah. there was not a single white person who lived on my side of town. And right. for example, right. you would see things like there would be no white kids that would take the bus. No white kids would eat lunch in the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. I'd be told often, you're the first black person that's ever come to our house. Hmm. Yeah. And there was a lot of around, and I think it took me, I think until after college, a lot of the exceptionalism that was put on me mm-hmm. around, you're the only one, you're this, this, and this. I think I took it when I was younger as like a bad, and then I started to resist it and try to question, why just me? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like literally, like this, this doesn't make any sense. What is yeah. the narrative that's being put together? And really being right. clear around, okay, what's at play are these other systems, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how are we mindful around what's happening, right? Because it's very easy yeah. just to go with the flow and be like, I am exceptional. Yeah. I am, yeah. I am so different. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's yeah. like, no, boo, you're not that, you're not that different. <laughs> You're not. I mean, you're different as every person is different. Right. But you know, come on. Yeah. <laughs> when you when you discovered that for the first time, like when that realization hit you, what changed? I think I was like, I'm going to use this system to the, my benefit. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to use this to open doors for me. I'm going to use this to, I'm going to call it out, and do, you know, ask those questions. Yep. Yep. And I'm also going to ask more questions of myself. So I'm not going to think that I'm not extraordinary because again, all humans are extraordinary. Yep. And I am going to start thinking about and asking these questions and not also internalize. It's very easy. And I, and I did for a long time to internalize the exceptionalism, right? Right. It can help you believing things about yourself and your community that are just not true, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, like what in particular? Do you remember specifically what those were? I remember when this is like when I was coming into my queerness, I was in college and mm-hmm. I was like, well, why are only white women interested in dating me? Oh. And then it'd be like, interesting. It'd be like, well, I guess I'm just like too different or too this, right? Or uh-huh. I'm just like too out for Black people. 
black women. Yeah. Right. I would create that versus like, well, um, Paris at the time, you know, I was a women's studies major and I was a dance major. So these were departments with a lot of black people. Actually, I was like the only one. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's like, (laughs) um, maybe it's because of like where you are, right? Like where you're located. So part of the key reason why I decided to move to Atlanta was as a guy, me to I don't want to be that. And that's actually why I love Atlanta. It's, it is so many Black queer possibilities. There's actually so many possibilities of being. So I am not unique. Right. I mean, literally what I love is that if I want to go birding with all Black people here, I want to go hiking, if I want to go run, if I want to go, I mean, I can literally be so specific. If I want to go eat raw food made by Black queer women here, I can totally have that experience. Yeah. You know, yeah. So instead of being like, I am just so, I am literally one of millions here and I love yeah. it. Yeah. And it, I mean, what you're also saying is it, it, it opens up a whole world of recognizing diversity in all its forms, right? Like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it expands your options when you start to realize that each person is special. It's not, you're different from everybody else. And that gives you, a leg up or you become, you know, the example. It's that every single individual is different and special. Yes, because if not, you end up becoming, I mean, I think so much around some of the problematic people like a Clarence Thomas. I think his villain origin story is that he was so isolated and made to feel exceptional. Mm. So much so that he betrays his own people. Because I think that's what happens when you believe in exceptionalism, you do everything you can to protect it. Yeah, You can't let anybody in because if you let anyone in, you're not exceptional anymore. Right, right. You can't be the only one if there's other people. So you, yeah. you gatekeep, you keep it small. So, you know, if you don't want to become that, that villain, you go and you are willing to, again, Everyone has something is extraordinary, but it's not based on just limiting yourself to being the only person, you know? Yep. That's so true. So, so true. I never really thought of it from that perspective, but because there's just so much pressure that you put on yourself and then your perspective of the world is just from that one vantage point. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Going back to just growing up for a second, just curious to know what what did you want to be when you grew up? I know what we you've become who you are, but what did you think you would be when you were growing up? <laughs> so I'm one of the kids who really wanted to be a marine biologist. I am born <laughs> in that time. <laughs> I remember yeah, yeah. I was like, I don't like I don't see those memes now. Like, I don't know what campaign they were running, but I literally, I was like, wait a minute, I'm not the only one who <laughs> really wanted to to do that. I was always really interested in science. And, you know, my parents were like, listen, go be a doctor. They were like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're educators. Yeah. We own our own business. We don't want you to struggle like that. Go be a doctor. Right. Be a doctor or a lawyer. They actually were like lawyer because you love to argue. Yeah. But I, I thought about, I was interested in being an OBGYN. I, I did consider that mm-hmm. when I was younger. I thought about marine biology. I thought about, because I come from educators, I was like, well, maybe I'll be a teacher. So 
that's what I thought. And then, yeah. And then I was a dancer growing up. And so it was very clear. My parents were like, that is not going to be a career, but I loved it. <laughs> my first semester of college, I was like, oh, I'm actually going to become a dance major. And I took my first women's studies class and I was like, and I want to do this too. I don't know what this is, yeah, but I'm obsessed with it. I love it. And I tell everybody, if you want the best degree there is, get you a women's studies or a gender studies degree. Mm. Or even like if you're interested in like African-American or anything like that, that degree is changed. I learned so much and it really right. set me up for what I want to do, what I'm doing, which I am living my my dream. Yeah. So how did you go from dancer to what you're doing now? How, how did that journey happen? Well, I mean, as you get really, they're really deeply tied. I think I love dance very much. Yeah. But again, it's a, it's a brutal space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talk about not very feminist. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was, you know, black bodies, black women's bodies are seen very different mm-hmm. in the dance space, especially if you do not. And at the time there were no black women or black professors in the dance department. Mm-hmm. I, you know, got into the BFA program and there were companies I was I was interested in. And I think I just made this decision where I said, I don't want this part of my passion to become what I have to do to make a living from. Yeah. I just didn't want that to be so tied. Right. I felt, yeah, I just, I, I literally just made that decision. Like, yeah, I just don't think I could, I would want to do that. So I graduated with my degrees in women's studies. And I just was like, I want to okay. see where this is taking me. Cause I'm kind of obsessed with what I'm learning. And I actually didn't know what was possible as like a career. So this like join a nonprofit job, none of that. That was not clear to me. I had no idea yeah. what I was going to do. Yeah. I just knew that I was interested in, in learning. I just was like, I guess I'll go to grad school. <laughs> I think for so many people, like, it's like the yeah. meeting room. <laughs> right, right. Like, yeah, I'm not ready yet. Let me just do another four yeah, years of I school. Yeah, I went back yeah. home after I graduated <laughs> and actually did an internship with the organization. I was like, okay, I like this. Cool. Yeah. And then I went back home and I started organizing in my local community and I worked at a food co-op. Nice. Yep. I was trying to figure out my next steps. And then I went uh-huh. to grad school in Atlanta. And then that's when I was, I had done other organizing before, but it was all, it wasn't like that was a career. It was just something that you do. Right. And when I came to Atlanta, things just kind of got into sharp review around what was possible. So I think that's where I, I just made that distinction. Yeah. Where I was like, you know, there's this thing that I love and I brings me so much joy, that's dance. And now there's this other thing that I love and brings me so much joy. But, you know, a lot of my friends that I dance with is a really short career too. Right. It's very, I actually, I mean, I'd be really honest. I, I say this, I have a, a tremendous confidence in myself. I think if I would have chosen that, I would have done well. Because I, w- I would do well, whatever I would have chosen. hmm I really, I believe that wholeheartedly, but I think for this version of my life, this is my path and I'm right. And I'm pretty stoked about it. Yeah. And so when did you decide to start your own thing? Because was that the first thing that you did or were you led to this somehow? Or did you see someone else doing something similar and you thought, 
I like this nonprofit. It supports women, but I'm going to, I have a vision of doing it my way. Like what, what inspired Black Feminist Future? Yeah. So I moved to Atlanta in 2003 and was in grad school. And then, you know, I really deeply fell in love with the city. It's where I really became an adult. So Greensboro is what raised me, but Atlanta has raised me too. So this is like my second home that I just truly love deeply. Yep. And once I got here and just got, like the organizing here is just so incredible. I joined an organization as a staff person called Georgians for Choice and was like, Mm -hmm. amazing. Like I was so excited. Like, oh my God, I can get paid doing this. And (laughs) I barely got paid. Like I was making like 23,000 a year. Right. No insurance. Like I just was hungry, hungry, hungry. And then because at that organization, we actually created a new organization. So in around 2005 called Spark Reproductive Justice Now, which is still around. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think I really cut my teeth in. If you see a hole, you see a gap, fill it, right? Like don't yep. have to ask permission. Yep. And working at Spark, I've worked at other nonprofits. I've been a consultant. I've been just part of movement for a really long time. I think when it came to starting Black Feminist Future, I was really, I just, I just had a job at a racial justice organization and I, I was frustrated. I was like, hey, there's people who really are not talking about the intersection as well. They they mean to. It's not like they're not, don't want to, but I actually am really curious around focusing on Black feminisms as a blueprint. Because for me, it is, and so many is a blueprint for liberation, how we get free. It started as a, as a, I would say, we did these visioning salons and listening parties to get a sense, would people be really interested in this? Would they be interested in being a part of building a vision for Black women, girls, and gender expansive people in this country? And Mm -hmm. there was a lot of excitement. So in 2014 is when the names formed, it started to form itself. And now, and intentionally I kept it, it was just me. Yeah. It was like, volunteer run, my money put into it. Right. And then in 2019, I made the decision or 2018, I started doing more external, bigger programming. And then in 2019, I was like, you know, I had been really burnt out from the role of ED in particular, like the fundraising piece. It's, it's a, it's tough. Yeah. So I didn't really want to get back into that until I was ready. Yeah. And then we took off. And wow. Yeah. We have, we're steady growing mm-hmm. and building. And it's again, it's a dream. And I love what I get to do in the world. Sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. And now a word from our sponsor, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You know, Remen, we love all of our sponsors equally, but we love some of them more equally. Why is that, Sharon? Well, Roman, what better message than the entire team at Modern Minorities reminding you, our listeners? I think you mean our super sophisticated, ever-charming, and always good-looking listeners. But of course, what better message than to remind you to make time for your health so you don't lose time for the things you love? That's right. And there's no better way to do that than getting your updated COVID vaccine. 
and updated COVID vaccine restores protection that has decreased over time, including protection against severe illness, hospitalization, and the worst effects of COVID. If your last COVID vaccine or booster was before September 2022, it's time for an updated vaccine. You know, now that the holidays are over, we're back to work and back to play, so we've got to protect ourselves as well as our friends and family. Yeah, I mean, I've got to go see all my spring superhero movies, no matter how good or bad they are. Oh, those are pretty important. And all my nerdy journalist talks at the local library? Uh, sure. What about stand-up comedy shows? Yeah, those are key. (laughs) Laughter is the best medicine. I mean, after vaccines. And you know what else having your latest COVID vaccines makes safe and possible? What's that? How about fancy dinner date nights with your partner when the kids are home with a babysitter? Does the babysitter also have their updated vaccine? Of course they do. Duh. (laughs) Well then, yeah, those date nights are totally clutch and would not be possible if it weren't for all of us having our updated vaccines. And don't forget the ever-important trips to visit grandparents, uncles, and aunties so that you can enjoy home-cooked mom dishes that you don't have to cook. (laughs) That's right, Sharon. (laughs) Not cooking a home-cooked meal at home is key and made possible when we all have our updated COVID vaccines. COVID is still serious stuff, so we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love safe. Find updated COVID vaccines at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, who we are big fans of. And now back to our show. You've been around then for nine years, right? Yes. Almost 10 years. Yes. That's incredible. And I mean, just kind of, I know of you guys just from going on your website and hearing about you all. What do you think in the last 10 years you're the most proud of accomplishing? I think the thing that I love so much is that there's so many more people that are talking about their work and themselves as Black feminists. I see it everywhere. Yeah. I'm seeing people talk about some of the work that we've put in the world, or like we talk about patriarchal violence instead of gender-based violence, people using the word patriarchal violence, right? That to me is so exciting, right? Because it's definitely evidence of our work. Yep. And we also don't claim it. It's not like we're like, aha, we did that. But it's quite clear that our work is touching many people. Mm -hmm. I love that. We have members all over the country and bringing them together, that we are growing, mm-hmm. that, that I think we are a force to reckon with. That's what really excites me. I think, I mean, the, the, the fact that you've been able to start your own entity and keep it going for 10 years is in itself a win, you know, like that, like that just has to be commended overall because I'm an entrepreneur myself and I, I, I hear you on the burnout and I hear you on the, of just fine of those moments where it's like, can I keep going? Right. Like, is this worth sticking to and things like that? And I advise a lot of startups too. And then I also hear you on the nonprofit side, cause I'm on a couple of nonprofit boards as well of the fundraising, because that's the thing about being a nonprofit executive director. It's not just an organization that needs to keep running. It's an organization that needs to keep, get funded to keep running. It's not like you're, you know, like you're not selling a service that you're going to profit from. You're literally relying on the support of everybody around you to keep it going. And that's like, 
it's just double, triple. It's exponentially more difficult um, and challenging at moments. So so true. Yeah. I really hear that in so many ways. And and yet I also hear all of the excitement and and I, I see and I feel that too. Like I think we're in such a great time right now where feminism, black feminism, queer, queer rights, queer issues, queer, like so many things are happening today and it's so liberating. And I feel like everything you're doing is, there's such an intersection in so many ways, right? It's you're, you're serving yes. multiple communities and all of the things that you're doing. And it's such a beautiful culmination of that. And, and, um, and, and I can hear that in your voice too, all the passion that you have to keep expanding. I do, I, I'm just curious, like, can we talk about sexuality for a second? Sure. Why not? Yeah. So what was it like coming out, especially to your parents? I mean, I'm making a lot of assumptions, but I'm assuming that, you know. It wasn't the best news that they heard. At the- yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I don't know how to say it, but exactly, right? Growing up in the South, I mean, that's not something that is probably very common. And so when did you know? How did you know? How did you tell them the news and how did they respond? Let's see. I mean, I think that there may have always I think, you know, I think the piece around sexuality is that I think for all of us, it's very fluid and we're always on a journey. And I think for me, yeah, or let me say this, to me, it's not given, right? It's not like a, I know there's been like this quest for like, find the gay gene, but I'm like, yeah, there's no straight gene. So what are you talking? Yeah. It's like, so yeah, it's not static. It's not static. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I was. It was like 1999 and Mm -hmm. I think I just had this like, okay, I think I like women, but I need to like try it out. (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, okay. I'm like, okay, I need need to see what's up. So I remember (laughs) I had this class, I had this psychology class and there was someone who I was like, okay, this is definitely a lesbian. Okay, she rides a motorcycle and um, I'm going to choose her. I'm going to like, I'm like, I want to be, see if this is like a thing. Right. Right. So, right. you know, we end up dating and I was like, and not even dating, like we start talking. I'm like, okay, this is real. Right. Like this is like a yeah. thing. So I remember I ended up telling my, who did I tell first? My brother first. And it was kind of like, okay, whatever. Then my sister and then my mom, they ended up telling my dad. And it was kind of like, whatever, girl. Um, sure, sure. And I think like everybody who are, when their expectations around who we should, who we should be, what we should be doing, mm-hmm. it's there an adjustment. And I think my family adjusted really well and quickly. Like they just caught on mm-hmm. to the program because it was like, this isn't changing. And I remember my mom was like, you know, it became a choice around like loving you or losing you. So I chose to love you. So, yeah. And now she's like, she loves my partner more than me. It's so sad. Well, <laughs> everyone does actually. <laughs> my parent is so amazing though. And so it's a, it's a learning journey, right? And so right. that's the journey that we've been on. And it's been a great one. We've learned. Yeah. We both have to learn together. I mean, one of the things is that families have to come out too, have to come out to their friend. We still talk about that. Like, okay. So like when my partner and I got married, it was like, okay, so 
you know, what are you going to call M? What do you call her? Like, she doesn't use, she's like not a dad. She's a baba. She's not an aunt. She's an uncle. So she would be your son-in-law, right? Right. You know, just, and again, instead of being like, why don't you get this? Being like, let's talk about it. Because, yeah, let's just, let's be real with each other. So yeah, it's, yeah. It's been a journey. It's been a worthwhile one. It's not perfect, but we don't ask for perfection. We ask for people to try, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's a great story. And I think your family sounds like they're, they're really open to learning. And I think that's really key too, right? Like you, both, both you and your family are coming to this with open minds and open hearts and and they want, like, they want to know, they want to know what to call M. They want to know. I mean, there were Fights, of course. I mean, when I first came out, they were like, no, um, not like what's happening. Like, right, it was, right. it was not all like what I am now, but again, it's like 20 plus years now. So, sure. If you're still hoping for me to be straight, then you, the problem is you. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Thank you. I, I also read or heard that you are into the outdoors. I am. Yeah, like what's what's that about? Well, you know, I think and there's a book I wanted to it's coming to my mind. I'm sure someone is gonna know, but you know, growing up in North Carolina, there's always like I was always barefoot. I'm still barefoot now. Mm-hmm. Always tons of grass, always tons outside, climb trees, play in the creek, you know, just that's like a way of life, right? We always like farm stuff. You know, growing up, my daddy always had a whether it would be like a large plot that we would garden in or like even like the smallest plot, like a container. Up until, he's, until he died, like there was always something we were growing. And I have that, like I always am growing um, something. It feels really just key. And a part of that, I think I just have like a wonder for the natural world. It's like one of my greatest areas of exploration. I think in a world where there's so much, there's so much depression and division and things that we have to fight against, I think that the natural world for me is the place that can quiet so much. And I learn. Like one of my favorite places to go is Iceland. Like truly one of the most amazing places on earth. I've heard so much about Iceland. I think Iceland's had like in the last two years has had the best PR or something. Because yes. everyone I've talked to lately <laughs> is like, want to go there or I've been there. And I'm like, what is it, Iceland? Like your tourism bureau is just like blowing it up. No, yeah. once you go, you get it. Yeah, I need to go too. Cause I'm just like, it just sounds like this amazing place. Like I just, I never want to visit places twice, but I want to go to Iceland like every year. Really? Because there's like something new. Yes. I mean, it's, it is the natural situation there is so overwhelming that you just can't, like I'm serious. Like sometimes it's so intense that it just kind of makes you like, like the black sand beaches. Right. Are, right. Like it's not a little bit, or we went to a place where there's these, they call it glacier beach, which is like chunks mm-hmm. or they call it diamond beach. Cause they're chunks of glaciers with like these huge diamonds on the beach or, Whoa. or there's, you're just driving and there's a huge waterfall that's just like falling off a mountain or <laughs> there's like, you're driving and there's like a geyser shooting up. It's just so wild. It's so overwhelming it's like it's it's amazing it's just like and like one of my favorite singers Bjork is there and I get it like I get her music yeah 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 like if you go when you go to Iceland you'll get her more 
Mm. You'll be like, I get why her set, because I mean, Iceland is just amazing. But anyway, I think around around that, I, um, I have a dear friend named Zara. We met at a meeting, gosh, almost 20 years ago. And I remember we met because there was this young white woman named Nora, who's a friend who said, yeah, I just got back from by touring across the United States. And me and Zara, she's a black woman. We looked at each other and said, what did you just say? <laughs> you just rode your bike from New York to California by yourself. And we were like, the next time you do that, tell us. So right. that she organized a bike tour from New Orleans to New York. And I did New Orleans to Atlanta. It was like two weeks and it changed my life. And then Zara and I, we did another bike tour with Nora and a bunch of other folks. We went from Eugene, Oregon to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And like we literally carry all our gear on our bikes. We oh my gosh, we camp. And is this like is this a biking like motor uh, motorcycle biking or biking no, like bicycle. bicycle cycling? Oh my <laughs> gosh, Paris, you are pedaling across the country. No, we're pedaling across the country. Oh my I gosh! <laughs> and then we're not only are we pedaling, we get there. We also set up camp camp and sleep in tents and cook food Look at you. and then you know <laughs> process and do it again the next day and so I've done maybe like eight or nine maybe almost 10 bike tours wow it used to be the way that I would take my vacation <laughs> yeah yeah so to relax you're gonna go work out I for know, like 10 I hours know. straight right <laughs> I haven't done one in a while I actually miss it very much because not only do, you know, we plan them, we lead them. Yeah. Our company is called Black Freedom Outfitters. You can see it on the Instagram and on the interwebs. And we'll drop, we'll drop some links in our show notes yeah, too. So everybody we, can check um, it out. Yeah. Get busy in the outdoors. And we, we do hiking. Zara has actually really taken a big lead on it. She's done. She was just in um, Sierra Leone where she was bike touring in West Africa. So yeah, I think there's a moving meditation. I think with all that's that's happening, I find myself, my brain, my, my mind just empties in the, the repetitive nature of the pedaling. Sure, yeah. It doesn't really empty with hiking. I'm like really aware of every step and I'm like, is this, are we there yet? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if hiking is my thing, but I love camping. I love it. It's just yeah. something about, you know, it reminds me of my childhood. My brother and I used to set up like a, we didn't have a tent, but we would take a lot of pillows and make a fort outside mm, yeah, and um, sleep outdoors and think that would just be the coolest thing. Right. So yeah, just like looking up at the stars on a clear night is amazing. Nothing right? beats so, nothing, yeah. nothing yeah. beats it. So yeah, I think we have to find ways to escape Yep, and take inspiration. So for me, nature and especially I think it's so important for black people to reclaim nature because it makes sense our history with it has been so you know from so yeah we can reclaim yeah. it there's so many so much around I think black folks is like not just like reclaiming like our inner child it's like our even even like our ancestry right like the, the right children of that because there was so much we were denied and so many things that it's like, no, don't do that because it's not safe. It's not this, it's not that. You know, so much of what we were told was around cautionary 
around keeping us alive. And, and I honor that because there's a lot of wisdom in that. And then also how do we learn to thrive too? And, you know, yeah, learn some other ways of being in the world. Absolutely. I think, you know, I, I don't get out in nature as much as I should. I'm a city girl at heart, but whenever I have, I feel like it, it gives me perspective, right? Like it makes me feel so small in such a big, big system of things. And you just get this feeling of awe that like just doesn't come from anywhere else. Like it only comes when I take a look at the horizon, like when I'm standing on the edge of, of an Island and I'm taking a look out at the ocean, right. Or, or like looking at the stars, like I said, on a clear night, like that feeling, it's not like anything else I've ever experienced. So it's, it is one of those really unique things. I have not biked more than like five miles though. So I commend you. The first time I did my bike tour. Yeah. To that point, I'd only biked five miles. Really? I'd never camped that way before. Yes. Yeah, so. Wow. <laughs> I don't Maybe I'll join it. you for the next one. I'll join you for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I I learned it was literally trial by fire. Trial by right. fire. I was like, whoa. But I got stronger every day. Because um, I'm saying you have to start somewhere. You do. Yeah, you absolutely do. Well, if we were to turn back the clock and go all the way back to Greensboro, to that little girl who was riding a bus to a school in a different place and the only one of, you know, one of a few in the cafeteria, what is some advice you'd give to her today? Oh, I would tell her, you are destined to do amazing things. Um, Continue to be your rabble-rousing self. (laughs) And uh, when other people want to think smaller, continue to think bigger. There's just so much that's possible. Yeah. Yeah, I think... I think I knew I was like, I'm going to do something neat in this world. I just wasn't sure what. And I know even, I'm not even in my final form yet. So I'm like, what else am I going to continue to unfold? So she was kind of a badass at that age too. So I'm like, continue on your trajectory of being a Black feminist badass. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And she's still a badass now for sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we close out all of our conversations with a quick speed round with our guests. Are you are you ready for speed round, Paris? Oh my gosh, I can't wait. Yes, I'm ready. All right, here we go. What's one thing about you that no one expects? Um. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. No one expects, no one expects, no one. And maybe the outdoor natural stuff, major world stuff, but let me see. Gosh, I don't know. Maybe everything. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe nothing. Everything. Okay. Everything. They don't expect anything. They yeah, caught off guard. We'll go with that. Everyone's always surprised. I love that. Yes. What is a book, movie, or television show with characters that you relate to? Oh my gosh. Um so right now I'm watching 227, which was out in the 80s, and I really love the character Sandra. I hope that I can give that energy. And then I also really love the show, The Office. I watch it like every day to decompress. Yeah. And I really <laughs> am scared that I might be Michael. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. I don't think you're Michael, but if you want to be, you can be. <laughs> I don't worry. I'm worried that I might be. <laughs> That's funny. What is your favorite mom dish? Oh, a blackberry cobbler. Mm, that sounds good. And what is your least favorite food? So what will you refuse to eat if it's like on a menu or served at dinner? Oh, I hate onions. Onions? Yeah. Like in things too? Or yes. just like if it's the main part of a dish? Yeah, just everything has to be without onions for me. So you should see me eat stuff that has onions. I will pick every single one out. Oh my God, you're so funny. Yeah, onions. I hate onions. <laughs> what if it's used as like, if someone just uses it to marinate something? Like if there's like some onion and some chicken. I mean, I actually do love Ethiopian food, which is a lot of onion in it. Like it cooks down. Yeah, yeah. So I can do something yeah. like that. But typically, my orders are no onions. And I think about opening a restaurant called Onion. No has onions. no onions oh. in anything. I think about that all the time. <laughs> I think you should do it. I don't I don't know if there's enough people, but I think that's, that's a good concept, though. People <laughs> love onions so much. It's like, I realize when I say it, people are just like, what? But in the womb, it started. I could not deal with onions even when I was in the womb. Yeah, that's fascinating. Green onions too. So like if something has scallions in it, you're like, no way. I'd rather not, but I can okay. deal. Okay. I will pick it off. I will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Like I, I'll eat a dumpling that has like a green onion in it. Okay. Yeah. It's not my favorite because it can be overwhelming, but I'm obsessed with garlic. See, that is re- That is very, very odd. I wouldn't have expected that well, because they usually go together, right? I know. Like usually- there's yeah, something make any wrong sense. with onion. I don't, I have to tell you. There's something wrong. <laughs> okay. I, I have an answer to my answer. first question. I have an answer to my first question. Oh yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. What people would be surprised to know. Yes. I'm actually a big softie. I'm really, mm. yeah. People think of me as kind of tough, tough exterior. Yeah. And I tell people I'm like a Klondike bar. I've got like, I'm 99% mushy ice cream. Oh. But that with one chocolate hard exterior, people see and they just assume that's what it is. But I'm mostly mush. <laughs> mostly mush. That's great. Mostly mush who hates onions. <laughs> yes, exactly. Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Oh my gosh. Who would I want to interview in a podcast? Oh my gosh. I have so many people. Oh my God. I have like my three North Stars which are Nanny of the Maroons, Harriet Tubman, and Audre Lorde. I would want to interview each one of them. Would you want them all on a panel? They sound like that'd be a really good panel. Oh my God, that'd be an amazing panel. Talk about the most epic plenary ever. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. All right, final question. What does being a modern minority mean to you? Interesting. Well, you know, I don't think of myself as a minority. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't. I think, you know, we're the majority around the world. Yeah. And I really am about moving, moving my ideas into like the dominant space. So I think, yeah. So what do I think about it? I don't know. Yeah. But I think that people like me is what's needed to make the world go right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we are the folks who are bringing innovation, who are bringing solutions, who are bringing the magic 
to the world. And so, yeah, I think there's more of us than, than less of us. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great answer. Paris, it's been so much fun talking to you. I'm, I'm glad we finally made it happen. Me and too. You definitely are like that Klondike bar. Like I kind of figured you were softy, but you're just so full of, you're so full of this amazing energy that that's coming through. And I, I'm really glad that we found the time to talk. And I think I'm, I'm excited for everybody to hear this conversation. So thank you for all of the work that you're doing out there and all of the people you're inspiring and all of the people you're getting to ride their bikes many, many miles across the country. <laughs> thank you so much. It was really fun. You're like the perfect interviewer. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to our next one. Yes, same. You take care. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.